This all is right. all comedy gold for an opener. Uh, yeah, whatever. I'm glad you think so. Whatever. Nah. <laughs> I just decided to come on every now and then. I'm going to bitch about it. Oh, sorry. Uh, who's bitching? <laughs> who's bitching? That was... Not bitching. That cut deep. I didn't even hear what he said. What are you saying? Nothing. He, I said nothing. he said you suck. It's like the sharks and the jets. We're going to dance and we're going to have a night fight. I will eventually bring the show in when you shut down. I'm waiting. Oh, that did it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's all he does. Shut him up. <laughs> all right, here we go. Are you going to bring us in? Yes, I am. Now? Sorry. I'm trying to be good. You should do it. I was thinking. Uh, <laughs> All right. You can bring the show in then. <laughs> no, no, no. You go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. <laughs> Hello. You know, I just love being a bull buster, though. <laughs> <laughs> Back to the bin. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spataro. That's Bill Robinson. That's Scott Gardner. Here we are. Hi. Doing the. It's like we're doing the good, the bad, and the ugly on show openers because we're all like. Look, we can't even see each other, but we're like waiting, waiting. Who's gonna, who's gonna sit, who's gonna speak? When can I interrupt? No, I, I always, I will send you some, uh, some good Western standoff music for the opener. We had the the old Mexican standoff. There you go. Oh no, just, just the end of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Don't, don't. Well, that's don't. that's the term for that is a Mexican standoff when you have a three way. Ah. Uh, gun battle like that, but the question is: Is that still politically correct? Because I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if you're <laughs> well, allowed to say that anymore. Who cares? Well, the book we're going to do, we're going to throw political correctness. That I'm going to do, I think political correctness will be out the window. <laughs> yeah, we were not planning. Anybody listening, we were not planning to record tonight, and then we scrambled to the last minute. I know uh, I had to do a quick read through of all three books. I don't know if you guys were able to get all three in. I got the book read. That was it. I got I've my, already read your book. Yeah, I, I, re, I reread I my book, but then I went with uh, I went with a pre-canned synopsis because I just didn't have time to, to plan one out, and I didn't <sighs> feel like doing it off the cuff. I know how much you love that. <laughs> I wrote my synopsis ahead of time. There you go. And right. I'm going to wing it, or I'm going to use the one-paragraph synopsis. Oh, God. Oh, God, we could be here for a while, folks. Strap in. Yeah, winging it is not necessarily Bill's strong suit. It's only 14 pages. <laughs> <laughs> I can give but some I, color commentary along the way, or I can just do the pre-canned, and you know, then we can go dig into the, into the meat of the book. I just hope that we get more response to this episode right out of the gate going hey scott's back yay because i'm trying to remember who was it that, that was so excited that i was back somebody uh, posted something about your, that i think it was missing was it your wife oh sorry 
I'd much rather get that than, than any more of the. Oh, God. Yeah, why don't you podcast and leave me the hell alone? <laughs> <laughs> yep. That sounds familiar. So, my book is from October of 1969 Captain Dude. Marvel, vol- Volume 1, Number 17. Now, this is the first issue that features Captain Marvel's. I hate to say 1969, it's updated, but it was his updated costume. Uh, Before this, he had the green and white uh, costume. And during the last story, that was replaced with the more well-known red, blue, and gold costume that he came to be known with. Uh, Oh, yeah, this is when he still had his white hair, too. Yeah, just by way of commentary, the first appearance of the new costume was in... uh, was in the, the the issue before this, and it was drawn by Don Heck. And I just put a copy of the picture into the uh, chat window. It's awful. Oh yeah. Uh, oh my god. It does <laughs> change again though, because um, when he beefy meets, there. Yeah. What is it? The Living Tribunal. The Living Tribunal kind of beefs it up just a little bit more. It's essentially this this same outfit that that you're showing here, but it, it does change slightly. Well, that's hey, when his hair goes from silver to gold. On. Yeah, that's when his hair goes from silver to gold, too. Right. What'd you say, Bill? He's got the Hyperion girdle on, too. <laughs> in, in the in the Don Hectron one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's ter- that's terrible. Hey, he's a fat ass in that yeah, picture. I know. <laughs> it's and great. And then on the cover, the cover of the very next is the cover of the one that you're doing, and both in the in the little picture box of it. What do you call those things? The little... Uh, logo box or whatever. That's as good and, a term as any. Yeah, and and the cover itself, he's he's nice and lithe. He's he's actually, I don't want to say scrawny, but he's he's rather thin. He's lean, know? svelte. Lean. He's there you go, lean superhero. So yeah, he uh, he hit the gym big time between these two issues. <laughs> so the cover of this issue actually has. Captain Marvel standing front and center with the negabands on, which are radiating energy across his body. And then behind him is Captain America and uh, Rick Jones in the Bucky costume. Uh, It's drawn by Gil Kane and inked by Dan Atkins. This is, in my opinion, an iconic cover. Oh, yeah. So it, it it is so much better than the... Don Heck drawn image of of Captain America that I just threw in the chat window, and at some point I'll put it on the Facebook page. But I mean, it's it's scary how bad that one is. So the story that or the synopsis I have is from Marvel Wiki, and the title of the issue, title of the story is called "And a Child Shall Lead You." It is written by the ever verbose Roy Thomas, penciled by Gil Kane. Inked by Dan Atkins, lettered by Artie Simic, and edited by Stan Lee. And the story is continued from the last issue. Trapped in the negative zone, Marvell is told by the Supreme Intelligence that he is trapped in this realm due to his blind quest for revenge against Jan Rog. However, he offers Marvell a way to potentially free himself and directs his mind towards Earth and to the plight of young Rick Jones, who has just been rejected by his partner, Captain America. Unknown to Rick, Cap had forcefully switched bodies with the Red Skull. Actually, that synopsis' point is wrong because the Red Skull had forcefully switched bodies with Captain America, not the other way around. 
He follows Rick as he returned to Avengers Mansion one last time to collect his things and start hitting the road again. When Jones gets close to an ancient Kree station which contains the Negavans, Marvell conjures up an image of Captain America to lure Rick Jones to the bands. There, Marvell contacts Jones and explains his plight and that the bands would allow him to temporarily switch places. Given the opportunity to become a superhero, Rick accepts and puts on the Negabands. Clashing them together, he and Marvell change places. Yanrog suddenly appears, having found a new secret station. Yanrog suddenly appears, having found the secret station, as well as hoping to get a hold of the Negabands for his own ends. This leads to a brief battle against Yanrog, in which Yanrog manages to escape. Chasing after him, Marvell is prompt. Chasing after him, Marvell is promoted to save what appears to be... No, I always said it right the first time. It's written wrong. Stupid thing. Chasing after him, Marvell is prompted to save what appears to be Carol Danvers. But it turns out to be a bomb, and Marvell tosses it away before it can blow him up. With Yanrog escaping, Marvell and Rick agree to work together in the future to get revenge on Yanrog. They change places again, and Rick resumes his wandering. Now, this is... Uh, Roy Thomas kind of trying to recreate this character of Captain Marvel and change the status quo for it because, as as I recall, you know the, the series was kind of just kind of plodding along. Wonderful, really, yeah, yeah. And I don't think it was doing too well in the uh, you know in sales. So he definitely was given a much more dynamic costume here. He was given the uh, the relationship with Rick Jones, which I think, I believe, was meant to uh, mirror the Billy Batson Shazam Captain Marvel a little yes. bit. Mm. And uh, it still didn't really come to life here. Uh, the, it, Captain Marvel didn't become really good until uh, Jim Starlin got a hold of him. Yeah. And, and that was, by then it was kind of, I don't think he caught on enough to, to you know to survive uh, sales wise, but those are the really good issues. So you know we see some flashes here, we see some cool things, but it's not quite there. Uh, however, you know the the dialogue in here is a little much, but most of the artwork is really nice. I, I think that Gil Kane in this issue was trying to do a little bit of a, a Neil Adams aping. And most of it he succeeds pretty well in. There are a few panels where the anatomy looks a little wonky. And I think, you know, we could talk yeah. about that as we're going on. Uh, in particular, uh, there's a shot where, where Captain America is uh, the Rick's Red Skull Captain America is attacking Rick Jones. And he's kind of throwing Rick. And you see Rick flying through the air and you see Captain America from behind. And his legs look like, uh, well, it looks to me like he should be Reed Richards and not Captain America the way he's body is moving <laughs> but outside of that i you know a couple of those little shots like that i think the artwork is really really cool in this issue there's also like uh when he first walks into the kree station it's like a big alien thing that just looks kind of stupid uh but like i said you know with with a couple of minor exceptions i like the artwork a lot in this uh i think the story kind of serves its purpose to create that relationship between the two i mean rick has always been a uh you know superhero uh, what's, what would you call him? Uh, not a roadie. Uh, <laughs> like a, a, gru a groupie. A superhero groupie. groupie. You know? Yeah, and, groupie, and yeah. you know he would do anything to be one. So you know it's not surprising that he'd sign on for this switch into the negative zone thing. But uh, you know that overall, I kind of like the issue. I'm 
Did you? Uh, I know Scott, you've read it in the past. Bill, did you have a chance to read this? Uh yeah, yeah. What'd you think? I was able to. Um. Well. <laughs> he That's why you really see it, ladies tell, and gentlemen. Well, <laughs> well, no, he doesn't really. Well, Marvel doesn't really tell him. Oh yeah, we're gonna switch, and you know, uh, you're gonna be a superhero. Just put these on. He doesn't tell him he's gonna go in the negative zone. He's <laughs> <laughs> just kind of like, hey, you sucker to that guy. But uh, but I mean at least they they do switch back and forth so but uh, yeah this was uh, I was surprised there wasn't as many I guess you could call them well there's a couple canisms with the well yeah never mind I just looked through and yeah there's a lot of nose shots but that's okay I like the opening uh, Marvel looks a little uh, like he's just came back from the proctologist or something there looks a little <laughs> surprised. <laughs> Well, the, the supreme intelligence looks like what the proctologist might pull out of you. <laughs> <laughs> God, no wonder you got cancer. Holy crap. Oh. <laughs> well, he's kind of like a big artichoke. <laughs> <laughs> and he was the delicious. Artichoke. <laughs> supreme artichoke. <laughs> with, with a little ranch sauce. A, yeah. You know, with some spinach and yeah. Oh, now I want some nachos. Fry right <laughs> up. The supreme artichoke dip. <laughs> I, you know, story-wise, though, like, why would Rick believe that Captain America would treat him that way? Because he's a dopey teenager. I, I think, yeah, I think Rick's a little, I don't know. Starstruck? He's, no, he's a little mental somehow, you know what I mean? He, the way he drifts around. <laughs> He's, I mean, right from the very beginning, he's always been kind of, uh, I don't know, just kind of loopy as a as a character, you know. Right from the, you know, <laughs> searching for a father figure. Yeah, you know that sort of thing. You know, it's just, I don't know. You know, he's supposed to be, you know, a young kid, and and I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm thinking of some of the retcons of him later, but he always struck me as, you know. They, they couldn't come right out and overtly do it in the original appearances like this back in the day, but I, I think, you know, if you look back at it kind of retroactively, it almost seems like maybe they were making him kind of uh, like a dopehead or something, you know, because like, he, he always just seemed a little, I don't know, just dopey. a little, yeah, a little dopey and a little out of it somehow, but I don't know. Well, you know, you could play the, uh, the lonely, the, the, uh, the, the, lo- the Lonely Man theme over when Rick Jones is leaving Avengers Mansion. <laughs> right. Just tell him Rick Jones said goodbye, and then mail me both the tears they shed. Do, 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 do. I work for do, Rick do, Jones. Do, do, do. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, the thing, too, is that, you know, Roy Thomas, you know, this is the issue where, where Roy is taking over. He's trying to, you know, help the book along and everything, and he very clearly is doing a golden age Shazam treatment to this. Cause you know, Roy Thomas, for anybody that doesn't know, Roy Thomas is a huge Captain Marvel fan. Now, I'm talking the, the golden age Captain Marvel, the Shazam uh, version. And I mean, it's very obvious here that that's what he's going for because Rick trades in his Bucky outfit at the beginning of the issue for, you know, look at page four. He goes from Bucky to the outfit he wears through the rest of this issue, and I think through most of the rest of the series, which is uh, blue jeans, a red shirt, and a yellow undershirt. Whose color scheme is that? Billy Batson's. 
Mm. And then he has the whole Billy Batson thing going on that whenever he needs to change to Captain Marvel, you know, he smacks the negabands together. Now, I'm also wondering, and I looked ahead, and it turns out it, it doesn't carry on, but in this issue, both times that Rick changes to Captain Marvel, he slams the bands together and says, fantastic, both times. So I was thinking... Is this supposed to be like his version of Shazam? But that does not carry on to the next issue. I noticed, but uh, you know, I'm, and I'm glad it didn't. Honestly, yeah, I know it's really stupid. But you know, just for this one issue, I'm kind of wondering if you know maybe he was heading that direction, maybe changed his mind or something. I, I, I have no idea. But yeah, they were you know he was clearly going for for that sort of a feel. So I don't know. It's interesting. It, it, you know. Despite your warning, Paul, uh, I did a read-through of uh, Captain Marvel uh, a while back, you know, the, the entire series, and mm -hmm. you were absolutely right, man. It's, it's a slog. It's really hard to get through. And what's weird about it is that you've got some really good talent on the book, you know, through its entire run. You know, in the early days, it was Stan was writing it. You've got Gene Colan was the artist for a while. Here we've got Gil Kane, who I love. You've got Roy Thomas. Later on, you would have uh, Jim Starlin. You would have uh, Pat Broderick. I mean, some really great, you know, top names on the book. But somehow it just, I don't know, it, it was really tough to get through. And while there are some good stories and some good concepts, and especially his battles with um, Thanos and everything with some good stuff, Taken as a whole, like when you sit down and you read the, the whole series in, in one go, it's, you know, like I say, it's tough to get through, but it's also, it's one just weird-ass read, because it just, it goes all over the place, and it's, it's very obvious that it was a victim of nobody really had a clear idea who he was, what he was about, where he was going, um, Jim Starlin seemed to for a while, but you know Jim Starlin's run also has the feeling that when he's done, he's done. You know what I mean? When when he's just kind of okay, I've said what I need to say with the character, and he moves on. And then the people that were left to pick up after him, they clearly didn't know who the character was or where he was supposed to go either. So the character just kind of meanders all over the place. He goes from being, um, you know, this this reluctant you know, savior of earth kind of thing in the beginning to this cosmic Avenger to, you know, the protector of the universe. You know, he just has all these weird identities, none of which ever really seem to play out solidly at all for him. He just, he kind of meanders all over the place. It's really weird. But this particular issue is interesting because this not only sets the template for the way Captain Marvel would be for a while, but this sets up a lot of stuff that's in the next issue where we learn more of uh, Jan Rog's uh, plot and everything, and it's the next issue is where the psych magnetron explodes and creates Ms. Marvel, although we don't know that for years down the line. The Carol Danvers that's shown in here is, you know, turned out to be a, a fake, turned out to be a bomb, but she is actually on the <laughs> She's blonde. the bomb, man. That's yeah, stupid. Yeah, that whole part would is you, dumb. Because would you she, say she was a blonde bombshell? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. But she is actually on that ship, as we find out in the next issue, or she's involved in the story. I don't know if she's on the ship, but she's involved in the story. And in the next issue, when Cap saves her from the Psych Magnetron when it blows up, that's what eventually is revealed in the Ms. Marvel series in the 70s that gave her her powers. So, yeah, it all, it all ties in, but it's just, uh, it's man, it's a bizarre read. It's a really strange read. 
Yeah, yeah. It, it is. It definitely, the whole series gets very, very strange until it finally settles into the Jim Stalin thing. And the Jim Stalin stuff is, not, it's not that it's not weird, it's just weird and good, <laughs> you know? It, it, it's Yeah, exactly. It's weird, but it's weird in a good way because I think with his stuff, the weird plays into the whole cosmic angle. You've got the living tribunal and all that, and it, and it kind of lands to the type of story that he's telling here the weird is is weird in the sense of what what the hell am i reading kind of weird you know what i mean where Mm -hmm. where you don't really know exactly what what the point of the story was where you're going the the characters are ill-defined so and that really that dogged the series a lot especially in these early issues you know, the constantly rotating writers and, and sometimes the art teams, you know, there, there just was no clear definition of the character or direction for the book. And it shows, uh, again, when you sit down and you read it all in one fell swoop, it, it, it becomes very obvious that it was, it was a directionless book. You know, it, it would start to go in a certain direction with one team and then that team would leave or, or, you know, one of the members of the team, like the writer or something would change. And then the very next guy would do something a little bit different. And so it just, you know, taken as a whole, it just, it has this very disjointed feel to it. Like what, what the hell's the point with this? Because plots would pop up and then they were unresolved and, and you'd go in different directions and things would never play. <laughs> it, was, it was just the weirdest thing. The, the one that really doesn't play very well at all is in the early issues, Cap adopts the identity of an Earthman that accidentally gets killed when the Kree first arrive on the, you know, the Kree team that he's a part of first arrive on the Earth. And I forget the name of the, the secret identity that he adopts, but he adopts this guy's identity and for the first, like, I don't know, half dozen, dozen issues or more, you've got Carol Danvers, who's just being a complete bitch to him because she smells a rat. She thinks something's funny. And so it becomes one of those Stan Lee subplots where every issue it's her trying to almost do like a Lois Lane kind of thing. Like, I know you're up to something, and but I'll figure it out kind of thing. And it goes on and on and on and on. And then all of a sudden, it's, it's just completely dropped as soon as... I think when a writer changed or something and then they just go off in a different direction. And now all of a sudden he's a well-known and respected superhero. And you're like, wait, how the hell did that happen? He, he went from being on a covert mission to now everybody knows about him and thinks he's a superhero. And, it, and it's stuff like that that really gives it the weird feel that it's got when you read mm. it. To me, to me, it smells of we are taking this name because it's available to us <laughs> and we want to copyright it come right. up with stories to tell guys come on <laughs> you know that's that's what it screams to me and and i don't see you know i've never seen anything to make me think otherwise until you know like i said finally you had a young upcoming guy like stalin at the time who you know was hungry for something and and needed a series where they you know where they wouldn't really look that closely at what he was doing so that he could tell the kind of stories he wanted to tell. So he started here. He told as much of the story as he was going to tell here. And I think he actually revived the series a little bit. But then he left this and he moved on to Warlock. Right. And, and did the same thing there. Because I think I think as, as he started to revive this series, they started looking at it more closely. And they didn't want to let him be quite as experimental as he was. So that's why he left it, and he he found a new hero that nobody wanted to write, and no, you know, and was in total danger of being abandoned. 
So, you know, but I mean, the Jim Stalin cosmic stuff, I just think is awesome. This, you know, this, this isn't bad. And it's, it's funny because it almost, it, it's got a little bit of a parallel because, uh, you know, Warlock was originally him. So he was a character that nobody really wanted anything to do with. And then he showed up in Marvel premiere in the first two issues. And then for the first few issues of the Warlock series, uh, with Roy Thomas and Gil Kane. Right. So he, you know, they kind of changed him around to fit what they wanted, the story they wanted to tell with him, which is exactly what Roy Thomas is doing here with Captain Marvel. So, you know, I'm seeing a little bit of a pattern now. And in both instances, you know, eventually Jim Stalin came and took over. Uh, I, I just remember you and I, Scott, I think, Bill, you weren't there. We covered an issue with, uh, uh, I can't remember the, who the uh, villain was. It was like Dr. Something or other. Uh, actually, I think it was another one where they were taking off on Captain Marvel, but it was drawn by Wayne Boring. And yeah, it was, it was yeah. the worst Wayne Boring I've ever seen. It was like 23 or something like that, I think. Issue 23 or something like that, I think. And I th- I'm thinking the villain was like a, a takeoff on Dr. Savannah. Yeah, I can't, I can't remember. I know the, I know the story you're talking about. I, there were parts no, it was, of it. it was, excuse me, it was Dr. Mind, M-Y-N-D-E, That's right. which is right. Mr. Yeah. Mind, the little worm thing from right. Captain yeah. Marvel. So, again, you know, another takeoff on that. But that was that was really bad. <laughs> this I didn't think I didn't think this of... was bad. I, I I like this issue actually overall. No, no, this this kind of I mean, you know, we make fun of Rick Jones, bitch, but uh, I mean he's been all throughout, you know, in a lot of Marvel of events, and this is just the latest in the string of uh, characters he would be paired with. He would later be paired with Marvel's son again. In the uh, in the nineties, I believe nineties, early two thousands, when they relaunched yeah. Marvel or Genesis Marvel, yeah, uh, I think Peter David was writing that also. Yeah, yeah, he was. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've heard it before, you know, said before that. You know, one of the big reasons that that Marvel did this title to begin with, or that Stan wanted this title, or whatever, was basically to, as you say, you know, take the the Captain Marvel name and make it their own. Uh, I've heard it said that that was done to block DC from being able to do it. But this, you know, this title debuted in this in the late '60s, and. DC's association with Captain Marvel wouldn't come around until sometime in the early 70s. So is that story really true? I mean, well, was... I don't know if it was to block DC from using the Shazam Captain Marvel. I think it's more or less Marvel deciding they want Captain Marvel. <laughs> you know, we're, we're going to be Marvel Comics. We want to own that title. Right. Like, that's the way I, I picture it in my mind. Not so much to block DC as to just to get that copyright themselves. And through the years, they right. certainly seem to have made every effort to make sure they continue to keep it. Well, with the, uh, what's her name, Monica Rambeau, Captain Marvel. Right. <clears throat> and then, you know, uh, the, what's it, Janice Vell, Captain Marvel. And now we have Carol Danvers, Captain Marvel. You know, they, they've cer- they certainly seem to have made an effort to make sure that they are always publishing a title or a, a character with that name so that they can keep the rights to it. Which, you know, I mean... 
all other things aside, you know, it makes sense that Marvel would want to own Captain Marvel. If there was a Captain DC out there, I think, D- I think you know, Warner <laughs> Brothers would be very upset if, if it fell under Marvel's copyright. Captain Distinguished Competition. So the fact that DC can't put the name Captain Marvel on the cover of their books really just comes down as a, as a happy happenstance as opposed to the reason why Marvel initially licensed Captain Marvel to begin with. That's that's Very my take on it. I, I you know I can't yeah. I can't speak that to that. That makes sense. It's just I think somehow that gets misconstrued in the in the retelling of of the story of Marvel's Captain Marvel. Because yeah, the the way I've heard it reported before, or you know, or, or you know, whatever spoken of before, was that uh, you know they they did it purposely to as as kind of a game of keep away, and that you know time wise, timeline wise, that. That can't be right. Yeah, because it was a good another... From when when Marvel created Captain Marvel and Marvel Superheroes number 12 to when DC got the rights, I would... uh, To when DC got the rights for the Shazam character, I would say it's at least four years. Maybe even a little longer. Yeah, I'm trying to remember when when Shazam number one... You know, DC's Shazam number one debuted. And I want to say it's like 74, I want to say... Something like that? I mean, I can look it up, but I, that sounds about right to me. I'm going to see if I can come up with it. I'm looking up stuff right now. You guys keep talking. Shazam number one came out, uh, cover date February 73. 73, okay. So, yeah. So that's what, five years? You said 68? 68, I know Captain Marvel number one came out. I'm not sure about... Uh, I'm not sure about Marvel Superheroes number 12 where the character was introduced. I'm trying to see that. That was December of 67 on the cover date. Okay, so yeah, five years then. Oh, no, it's more like six years. Yeah, so time-wise, I think you're right. I don't think the two are related. No, I don't either. But I think, you know, a light bulb went on over somebody's head, whether it was Stan or Martin Goodman or somebody who said, why don't we own the name Captain Marvel? Isn't it still available? You know, and I have no idea with the copyright law. I know, you know, there was a cease and desist that Fawcett had to stop, uh, you know, print, you know, producing the books with the character. But I don't know when the name fell into the public domain or, you know, became available for someone else to to, to get the rights for it. I have no idea about those, the timing and all of that. Yeah, that's that's a good question. I, I'm ashamed to say I have no idea when Captain Marvel stopped being published. If I had to guess, I'd probably say it was mid to late 50s, but I honestly have no idea. Yeah, forget it. Don't, don't fall down that Eddie Rabbit hole, because I just found one article that said, oh, the Captain Marvel Cluster F explained, and I think it was this guy's doctoral thesis. So forget it. <laughs> you can explain something. Usually it's in a quick and concise manner, not having me do a synopsis of it. <laughs> Jesus. Thanks for nothing, Gizmodo. Well, that's all I got on this. Yeah, I'm pretty much there also. Like I said, I am, with the exception of a couple of inconsistent panels, I'm actually pretty high on the artwork in this book. Uh, that's the only other thing I'd mention. Like I said, there's a couple of spots where the, uh, you know, the, the anatomy doesn't seem quite right, but for the most part, I think it's pretty dynamic. I do feel like there is an effort to kind of give a Neil Adams type, uh, layout in the book. Yeah. He does have, uh, where he's breaking the, he's breaking the panels 
a little he's, bit. He's got a lot of that, and he's also got a lot of very, you know, angled. A, a, atypical angled panels throughout the book. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there's definitely an effort to to kind of work off that, you know, as an inspiration. The only other thing is on the color wise, there's one shot uh, where Jan Rog looks like Kilgrave, Kill, the Purple Man, which I just don't understand. Oh well, that's when he's his. It's like he's bathed in a purple light or something. There. Yeah, yeah it's terrible. Color wise, it's terrible. But otherwise, I'm pretty happy. He's in shadow. It. So, I am going to give the cover to this book an A plus. I love the cover. I think it's iconic. I think it's great. Uh, it's it's very very compelling. The interior art, I'm really I'm really enjoying it with a couple of exceptions. But because of those exceptions, I'm going to drop it down to a B plus instead of an A. And the story, I think you know, I think Thomas was fairly creative and wrote a story that kind of makes some kind of sense, even though it's, you know, kind of forcing a little bit of a square peg into a round hole. Uh, but it's, a, I think it was an enjoyable read, and I'm going to say a B-plus on the story also. And on the virtue of the cover, I'm going to give it an overall A-minus. Hmm. Uh, I like this cover. It reminds me of, uh, I think it's like Avengers. I want to say it's it's in the 80s. Not in the 1980s, but in the 80s. It's volume one. I want to say it's like 89, where Marvel's like in an, in an electric chair getting a, getting electric chair. Yeah. Th- yeah, I know the one you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, and he's like getting, getting the bejesus zapped out of him. And he has this costume and the silver hair in it. Um, I'm going to go with a... Uh, I'm going to go with an A. Uh, I'll, I'll give it an A+. Plus. The interior art. Um, always good to see the Supreme Artichoke. <laughs> I said he's still around. He's tasty as always. Um, yeah, you're right. It is a lot of Neil Adams type shots and um, styles, but it's still good. And Gil Kane puts his own stamp on it. Um, I'm gonna give it. I'm right with you with a with a B plus. Uh, the story I like that they're able to wrap up Rick Jones's history, although it, at this point it hadn't been as much of a history. But basically in two pages, this whole thing with the Hulk, Teen Brigade, Avengers, Cap, boom, done. Two pages. It's, it's you know, and then we've moved on and now we're to the current status quo. Um, I'm going to give the story, I'm going to give it a B plus. So I guess that puts me in about an A. All right, I'm going to make mine nice and succinct and say uh, I think it's B minuses across the board. Um, I really like the cover. Uh, I think it's a really dynamic cover. I, I've always liked this one quite a bit. Um, it's just not quite an A for me. Um, the interior art, uh, I like the art, but it to me it, it does vacillate pretty wildly between like really dynamic stuff and really good looking panels to some that are uh, not so good. Some of the anatomy is really wonky in places, uh, especially page. Three. I don't know if this is the same Captain America you were pointing out, Paul, but the one where he's smacking Rick and Rick's kind of flying behind him. Cap is all kinds of messed up there. His, I mean, he shouldn't be able to do that with his head unless he's been decapitated. It just looks really weird. So some of the anatomy's uh, really off, and uh, a lot of the figures look kind of strangely elongated, like like really stretched out, like they're made of taffy or something. Um, and it's just, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I consider myself a big uh, Gil Kane fan, so I, I know 
you know, I know he can do a much better job than this. I like it, but I'm, I'm just not as crazy about it as some of his other stuff that I've seen before. I don't know if this is rushed. I don't know if it's the, the inker. I, I don't know. It, it's just some, a lot of it looks a little funny to me. And uh, I'm really not crazy about the coloring job, although that might just be the limitations of the day. I, I'm not really sure on that. But, you know, overall, I, I do like it. I do think this was one of the better issues of the series before uh, Starlin came along. And, uh, and I do like the story much better. I mean, it's a much better than average issue of Captain Marvel from, from this particular era. And, you know, this is clearly a, an attempt to, uh, you know, jazz up the character and, and move in a, in a new and exciting way that kind of sort of worked for a while. So, so yeah, overall, uh, B minus, much better than average issue. All right. And with that, we will move on to our DC. All right. Okay, we ready for this? All right, so for our DC this time around, I have brought to the table Superman, number 255. This is the August 1972 uh, 1972 cover-dated issue. It was on sale, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, on June 8th, 1972, for a cover price of 20 cents. Uh, the cover on this is by Nick Cardi, and I think that this uh, cover perfectly showcases why I personally consider him one of, if not the, uh, best cover art uh, cover artists of the 1970s. I just I think this is a fantastic cover. I really like this. So this cover shows Superman, and he's uh, kind of looking over his shoulder, and he's aghast as this big yellow or excuse me, big orange, rather, this big orange sun is burning pretty much right overhead. And he says, uh, everything on Earth flying off into space, into that blazing sun, and there's nothing I can do to stop it. And you see cars and people and buildings and just basically everything being kind of sucked up into the air and flying towards this blazing sun in the sky. There's even a an ocean liner there, which is pretty cool. It is just a, a really cool cover. I like this one a lot, and I've always been a sucker for uh, for Nick Cardi Superman covers. I, I just think this is one of the best. Now, well, this is like your ultimate dream, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, everything's getting thrown into the sun. Everything's going into the sun. <laughs> Everything must go. <laughs> now. As I sat down to read this, and I was like, you know, I, I know I got this not long ago. But I could not remember where I got it. I don't know if I scored this somewhere or if someone sent it to me. Now, I started a while ago keeping a record of stuff that, you know, comics that people were sending to me, um, you know, just so that I could give the proper credit when I would eventually get around to reading them on the show. I couldn't find anywhere in my database uh, where someone had actually sent it to me. So I'm thinking it, it was probably something I scored. But if I'm wrong and somebody actually did send this to me, please write in and let us know who you are because I feel really badly about that. I, I want to give credit where credit's due. So I, I just cannot remember where exactly I got this. But I know sometime in the in the last uh, probably couple years, uh, I, did a, I did acquire this issue, and I'm not, just now finally getting around to reading it. So anyway... Um, There's two stories in this book. We're going to look at the first story in the book. It is entitled The Sun. That's S-U-N, The Sun of Superman. And it is written by Carrie Bates with art by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. 
So our synopsis goes like this. While flying east to west across the United States in a specially modified airplane, WGBS newsman Clark Kent conducts a live on-the-air interview with Dr. Paul Reese, the world's foremost authority on solar phenomenon. Suddenly, the broadcast is interrupted by bizarre, unexpected solar activity, and after a quick check of his instrumentations, Reese concludes that another sun, an orange dwarf star, has entered our solar system and is headed straight for us. And since the Enterprise is the only starship in interception range... Oh, wait. Oh, never mind. (laughs) Anyway, after a very cool uh, panel essentially duplicating this issue's uh, awesome cover, but this time, of course, by the interior artist team of Swan and Anderson which demonstrates to us, the reader, what Reese predicts for the Earth and its people if this rogue sun continues on course. Kent abandons the plane uh, via parachute under the pretense of going for help. Now, the radio is out due to the solar activity, you see, and, uh, and they can't contact anybody, so that's how Kent you know, is able to say, uh, I'm going to go for help. So anyway, he... Uh, idea, land the freaking plane. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Of course, we know he's just doing this so he can get away to switch to Superman. So then, after jumping out of the plane, for some weird-ass reason, a volcano erupts right underneath him as he's descending. This is never adequately explained in the story. It just kind of happens, and you got to roll with it. Is it a side effect of the rogue sun? Uh, you know, I wouldn't think so, but then again, physics is hardly this issue's strong suit, as we're going to see. So anyway, the volcano burns off his Clark Kent duds, and the Man of Steel is on the case. So he streaks off-planet to investigate, only to find that the rogue sun is actually pulling away from him. So with a burst of super speed and a few trillion miles tra- uh, traversed, Superman catches up with this great orange ball and is zapped for his efforts, turning into a solid black, quote-unquote, human eclipse it's actually pretty cool looking he's just solid black with uh, with just his s shield on his chest showing through it it actually looks really neat the metropolis marvel logic leaps that flying directly into the sun is the cure for his new affliction and in doing so not only returns to normal but meets some new pals these weird amorphous light blobs that live inside a giant christmas tree ornament at the heart of the orange dwarf star God, I love Silver Age comics. (laughs) These light things communicate telepathically with our our hero, because space aliens, and tell him they lured him here to help them out. Remember, kids, this was at a time when everyone in the DC Universe was first a dick to each other before becoming friends, teaming up, and or, you know, just asking for help from the super, super person instead of, you know, tricking, endangering, or sometimes even injuring them first. Anyway, these guys evolved into their current state billions of years ago and found that, for whatever reason, they needed to manufacture a sun to survive. So, much like the Genesis Project in Star Trek II, (laughs) they pull cosmic gases together to generate their own brand spanking new solar furnace that they can live in. Uh, Problem is, (laughs) without... (laughs) Excuse me, I was creating a sun. In my room here. Without a sizable, stabilizing celestial body to orbit it, the new sun is just going to dissipate. All the gas is just going to, you know, float away. So now at this point, 
I'd just like to take a moment to point something out. You know, you probably weren't expecting to get an informed, qualified astrophysicist opinion on all of this. And that's a good thing because you're not going to get one. But I'm happy to play armchair uh, astrophysicist here and tell you that I don't believe that any of this shit. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on a second. I got to finish rolling this for a second here. Hold on. Oh, okay, keep going, Scott. I'm ready. (laughs) But, you know, I can go along with the gag. Anyway, so the aliens, who, by the way, they call themselves the Sun Thrivers, uh, cast off uh, a portion of their collected cosmic mass and create a body, uh, a a celestial body, to orbit their homemade sun. Not the body. (laughs) <laughs> this body, when cooled and formed, eventually becomes a planet. And this planet uh, is now going to serve their needs, and, and it did for billions of years, until one day, and this is the sun, dry, uh, sun thrivers, they go, the worst of all disasters has befallen us, and they're, they're all in a panic and everything that shows their planet blowing up, and it says, our planetary offspring is exploding. So with the destruction of their stabilizing planet, the aliens again face doom from the dissolu- uh, dissolution of their life-giving sun. Oh, and they, uh, by the way, they reveal to Superman that this planet that they created was, wait for it, Krypton. Mind blown. Yeah. Um, so hence the son of Superman title, I think, I guess. I don't know. I didn't know whether to think this was really cool or a serious groaner. So here's here's my problem is it's never never made clear in this story if this is a sheer and mind-boggling coincidence that they are telling this to the quote unquote the one survivor who stands before us now that's what they say except for Supergirl Supergirl's parents the people of Argo City the inhabitants of the Bottle City of Candor the Phantom Zone villains Crypto the Superdog Beppo the Super screw it you know you get, get the Super Horse there you go. Well, he wasn't from Krypton, though. Oh. Um, or if they actually sought Superman out because he's a Kryptonian, uh, which makes sense, except it doesn't, because their request of Superman is for them, for him to help them gather the last 10% of Krypton's remains that they need to reforge a stabilizing planetary body. In other words, they need a big-ass chunk of kryptonite to complete their plan well kryptonite of course as everybody knows is the one thing that's deadly to superman so how in the hell is he the perfect person to, to pull this off wouldn't this be a much better job for like green lantern or somebody it makes really yeah exactly it may it really makes no sense at all but anyway um superman wouldn't be superman if he refused to plea for help even if it meant risking his own life and limbs so he streaks off thinking the sun thrivers told me where the vital kryptonite mass is and why they can't retrieve it themselves this is important kids take note why they can't retreat it retrieve it themselves so the menace that's keeping them away from the green kryptonite chunk is this really cool-looking brain-sucker creature who appears to be feeding off this giant chunk of kryptonite. Now, I don't usually think too much of Kurt Swan aliens. And I'm, truth to be told, I, I think they're usually you know, laughable at best, and they kind of outright suck at the worst. But this one's actually really cool-looking. I've always thought this one was neat-looking. So... 
quickly encapsulating uh, the next several pages, because this goes on for quite a while, Superman, he has a short dilemma about how is he going to get the kryptonite to the aliens without depriving this brain creature of what appears to be feeding it. Um, he has this big dilemma, you know, this inner monologue about it, but then eventually he does have the sun thrivers. He telepathically communicates with them, and it turns out they have followed him uh, along his path to the brain thing. So they're right there with him the whole time, essentially. He has them zap the creature to release its hold on the kryptonite. So then they absorb the chunk of kryptonite. This was the missing piece of the puzzle for them. They absorb the kryptonite. The brain thing flies off, and we're told to, quote-unquote, replenish its energy, which I'm thinking actually stands for starve to death, because where is it going to feed now? They've already scarfed up all the kryptonite in the area. So anyway, the aliens create a new planetary mass out of the gathered remains of krypton. Now, before we go any further, did anyone notice anything funny about this sequence? Yes? No? Which, so, exactly which portion of it are you talking about? <laughs> Can you narrow that down? <laughs> well, there you go. Superman said, as he was flying away, he said, they, meaning the Sun Thrivers, can't retrieve it themselves, and described the brain creature as, quote-unquote, the menace keeping the Sun Thrivers away. But then they followed Superman to the creature, and they zapped the thing to release the kryptonite. So he, is, he had to distract. He had to distract what, it. What he needed? No, no, he didn't really do anything at all except put his life in danger by getting too close to this giant ass piece of kryptonite. Other than that, he Superman really doesn't do anything at all. It's the Sun Thrivers that do everything. They follow, they zap the creature, they steal the kryptonite. Superman doesn't, he has to stand off. He can't get too close to the creature or the kryptonite. So what exactly did he do? He, he didn't really do anything. And this, to me, was, was when I realized, I was like, oh my god, that, that, that doesn't make any sense. So anyway, the story ends with Superman wishing the now happy and becalmed light blobs well, and he flies off as this quote-unquote new kryptonite on cools but amongst themselves uh the aliens discuss telepathically the fact that this is only a temporary fix as krypton 2 they dub it now this just means that these guys you know this was pre-google so they couldn't look up and see that this name was already in use uh is also fated to explode like the original krypton which i guess is meant to be that that twist twilight zone ending to the to the whole story but i gotta be honest with you I kind of saw that one coming a mile away. So that's uh, that's the conclusion of this story. Now, Bill had asked before we got recording, um, you know, was this ever followed up on? I literally have no idea whatsoever if this was ever followed up on. I don't think so. It feels like but, it should be continued next issue. Yeah, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, maybe these light blobs, maybe the sun thrivers need to learn how to make planets better if they know this one's around. Ah, yeah, well, this one's going to blow up, too, in a couple billion years. So but yeah, yeah that's the time. thing. It could be years. They got time to figure it out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, what I meant by the Krypton Two thing is, if you remember, um, I don't know if you guys ever listened to um, the the episode, but I, one of the very first, if not the first episode I ever did of I've got a few things to say about Superman. I covered a story where Superman um, recreated Krypton. He 
Crypto and Supergirl completely recreated the entire planet of Krypton with robots and dubbed it Krypton 2. So there's already a Krypton 2. So, yeah. Electric Boogaloo. Yeah, okay. <laughs> right. Literally. <laughs> so, yes. Um, wow. See, I thought that this sun thing, as I was reading through, I was like, ooh, ooh. Is this that <laughs> creature? <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. is it what? You okay. turned into Joey Ross. <laughs> Car 54. Uh, I thought this was the one from, and has appeared in other ones, but I remember ma- mainly from Final Night, where... Oh, the Sun Eater. No, that... that the Sun Eater. That's that would be like, a cool a callback like, if it was. It, it would, but... To the best of my knowledge, the the only appearance of the of the Sun Eater in pre crisis was uh, in Legion of Superheroes, which is you know a thousand years from this. Right, that's that, what I. Well, I'm not up on that history, so I thought, well, maybe that's what this is. And then I was like, oh no, it's not. Okay. Yes, yeah. it's, it's just it's just the Organians from Star Trek. Who <laughs> don't know who tricked Superman into doing their bidding. So wait a minute, they they needed. I guess they didn't need all the pieces of Krypton because they even no. call out in this issue that the Kryptonite on Earth has been rendered inert and turned into lead. So it's like, well, they didn't need all of it. Turn it turned into iron, but yeah. No, they, they oh, could, yeah, iron. Sorry. Yeah, they couldn't yeah. have gathered everything. I, I think what they were oh, saying... Ten that, more percent. So, yeah, well, if you already got a flawed planet, anyway... <laughs> you, you guys suck. Sun driver. <laughs> well, I mean... Ass. Pre-crisis, I don't know how it goes post-crisis, but pre-crisis, one of the explanations for Superman's powers was that Krypton was so much larger than the Earth. I think somewhere in here, I'm not seeing it on a quick flip back through the book, but I think somewhere in here, they did. the aliens did say something about, oh, yeah, the, was something minimum, about the minimum amount that they needed. So they didn't need the entire like They didn't need literally every piece of Kryptonite that, that ever flew. Because I think that's where I thought initially this was going, and I was going to go, okay, that's ridiculous. If you need every scrap to put this back together, that, that would never happen. Because there's no way you can account for every piece of an exploded planet. But thankfully, that was uh, not... I don't know, because... Okay, okay, wait a minute. It says, our only hope for a stable sun is to recapture the original planetary matter that composed Krypton. When this load is absorbed, our intake will reach the midway level. That means half of the kryptonite is still floating somewhere in space. We must find it all. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I thought it said something, though, about the, 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 it, the basically they were doing it with like there was a minimum threshold. Like they only needed so much. They didn't need everything. But yeah, you're right. That That is what it's saying. So that is implying that they are they are actually collecting every single scrap of crypt. That's ridiculous. <laughs> That's completely ridiculous. What's to say that a sizable portion of of Krypton didn't fall into its? Well, wait, they are the sun. Um, yeah, I don't. Oh, help. that was my other thing. So technically, these guys are the gods of Krypton. These would be Rao. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. When he says Great Rao? Yeah, if this, if this is literally the Krypton sun, yeah. Hmm. Well, plus, some kryptonite fell through... Now, I might be confusing my pre-crisis and post-crisis history, but didn't some kryptonite fall through, like, space warps and shit like that? So, 
I mean, this kryptonite could literally be spread all over the friggin' universe. How in the hell are they possibly going to collect it all? It, that's just, that's all ridiculous. Right. But, I mean, I'm nitpicking a story that's already full of plenty of ridiculous as it is. I mean, it was an interesting story, and it got me, you know. It is. It is. And, I mean, the funny thing is, I don't, until I flipped to page 12 with the brain creature, I did not remember ever reading this story. I I thought this was a story, you know, just an uh, an unread tale of Superman. It was something I'd never seen before. But it turns out this is reprinted in Best of DC number 12, which I know I have and I know I've read. So um, I just didn't remember the story, but I did remember the brain creature. He's just damn cool looking. I, I love that. Uh, it's like a half page. Uh, splash. It's almost like a splash page. It's like three quarters of the page on page 12. And great shot of Superman flying in. <clears throat> great shot of the, uh, the you know, brain you creature the thing. Saw, saw this and went, hmm. Hmm. <laughs> right. I think I'll design my ship after this guy. <laughs> hmm. Tentacles, big giant skull. I'm there. But see, you know, as Paul has said many times, you know, things like this were not met. You know, they were never meant to be critically analyzed by fifty-year-olds. You, know, you know, this was this hey. was for you know hey, eight-year-olds. Screw you! So. <laughs> I still got six months. I, I got like eight months left, man. <laughs> Look at him, look at him um, desperately, um, desperately clinging to his 40s. You can see, like, his fingernails <laughs> scraping away. I'm 49! <laughs> but, uh... I'm 50 till June next year. <laughs> I, I enjoyed it. You know, for, for as silly as it is and everything, you know, it, just as a fun throwback to, to a Superman I've been missing a lot lately, this was a lot of fun. And I, I tell you, the thing that uh, I really liked the most about it was the art. Uh, I know I have been very critical in the past uh, of Kurt Swan, but I, I have never, I never meant to create the impression that I'm some sort of Kurt Swan detractor or hater. I'm not. This was the Superman I grew up with. I have very fond memories of it. It's just a matter of, I think he stayed a little long on the character past a time that, you know, re- I've read a lot of stuff, uh, you know, interviews with him and, and such. Uh, in recent years, and I think if you kind of read between the lines, I think he himself admits he was kind of bored, and I think it shows in his later work on the character, but during this time, I mean, there's a lot of vitality in here, there's a lot of, uh, you know, excitement and energy, and uh, he and uh, Murphy Anderson were just such an incredible team, I love the art in here, I really have no quibbles with it, Superman looks great. And uh, it really occurred to me, there's a couple of, of, uh, of shots in here of Superman. I'm trying to find the exact ones I, I saw before, but there was, um, trying to find exactly where it is here. There's a shot on page 10, but there's another one later on. Oh, here it is on page uh, 14, that second panel where he says, I have the answer. It really occurs to me looking at these panels that I think uh, Lee Majors would have made a damn good Superman. <laughs> he does look a lot like him right there in that in that one panel, I think. But uh, but anyway, more Charles Nelson Riley. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I, I dug it. It was it was fun in that in that silly silver agey, don't think about it too hard kind of way. It was a lot of fun, and I enjoyed it. I got I got to correct that. It's it's in the silly silver agey, don't think about it at all kind of way because <laughs> right. if you give it any thought at all it's like what 
<laughs> wait a minute, hold on. So let me let, stop me here for a second. A new sun is coming into our solar system, and the whole solar system hasn't exploded. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, start, did, start right it, there. But it did tear away the the rings of Saturn. Oh, okay then. Well, here's a, here's a question for shot. you. I was like, wow, that's uh, okay. Maybe one of you guys know, because speaking of solar systems, here's something I actually tried to look up and tried to find out, and I could not seem to find anything on this. Pre-crisis, was Krypton the only thing orbiting this sun? Because that's what this whole story hinges on, is that basically they're saying that they created Krypton to hold the sun together. And when Krypton blew up, then the gases that make up the sun started to dissipate. So that's that's saying, essentially, that Krypton was the only thing orbiting this sun. Does that wash? I mean, was Krypton the only thing? Because I, I honestly cannot remember if, if there were, you know, pre-crisis continuity, if there were ever any sister planets in that solar system mentioned. I just can't remember. Now, I know Krypton had moons. Well... Well, where does the uh, the Daxamites? Well, that's probably no, that's a completely different solar system. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've um, never heard I've never heard a story where they focus on another planet in the same solar system. Because it would it, it would. But be in the movie, the sun blew up, right? No, the planet. Yeah, but that was movie. Continuity. I know, I know, I know. I'm just stupid sun. And even part. even pre-crisis continuity, there there were different reasons given for why Krypton blew blew up. They they weren't they weren't always consistent because sometimes it was the planet you know it was internal stresses and sometimes you know it was different things that destroyed the planet so they were inconsistent with that but I just can't remember mention of other planets I remember mention of other moons it was because planetary that ties into was it Jaxer I'm trying to remember at least one of the Phantom Zone villains was sentenced to the Phantom Zone because he destroyed one of Krypton's moons by accident. Um, depending well, there on there you go. That that made the planet all angsty and it couldn't deal with it and it just uh, poof. But I'm just thinking, you know, those those are moons. So, you know, if that's you're no moon, that's a space station. If you're thinking about moons as as related to like our moon, then they'd be much smaller, so they I guess they wouldn't have the mass that these aliens needed for their orbiting thing. But I'm just wondering whether were there other other planets and I I can't remember. Hopefully somebody Scott, 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 let me just take a page out of Paul's book. Shh. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> let it go. That is the easiest way to, to explain this book. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Well, yeah. that's the thing play? about the book. That's the thing about the book that I, I really just kept coming back to is I can't think about the logic. I just have to accept it as a story. <laughs> and it's a lot easier to do that with Silver Age books than it is with books that came later. Oh, yes. Yeah. In late, later books, it's kind of unforgivable because they they matured as they went along. And they weren't just meant for little kids. And they were supposed to have greater scientific reality. Even, you know, even if it isn't, even if it was science fiction, it should still follow a certain set of rules. So, the earlier books, I can kind of just kind of, you know, chuckle to myself and, and move on. The later ones, I, I'm much less forgiving for what it's worth. Right. I also, uh, you know, I, I also just get a kick out of the older books with, for, excuse me, for exactly that reason. So, all right. <laughs> so, uh, Scott, you're going to do the, uh, the second part of the book, the... Uh... Prince Valiant meets Flash Gordon on Krypton? <laughs> I uh, I didn't even read it, to be honest with you. 
Oh, yeah. It says, on the night before Krypton died, the twin lover stars scorched an ebony curtain sky. Really? This is the night before Krypton died? These don't look like Kryptonian outfits to me. It was the night <laughs> Chicago died. The night that Krypton died. Dick Giordano art. This one character looks a lot like uh, Dick Grayson to me. Yeah, he does. It does say the night before Krypton died, though. But yeah, this does this does not look like the Krypton that we're all familiar with. Oh, it it does. It looks like Robin Hood or something. It's really yeah. weird. And, hmm. I do love the uh, Swamp Thing ad, though. I don't know if you guys see that in, in the one that you're looking at. Oh, yeah. All right. So, flipping back to the beginning of this uh, Superman tale here. Grades on this one. Um, I love this cover. Um, I, I think I'm I think I'm going to go a, a, a straight up uh, A plus on the cover. I love this. I definitely would have snapped this up off the stands as a kid if I if I saw this. This is this is the kind of thing that just would captivate me. It captivates me now. I just look at it and I'm going, damn, this is really cool. Uh, I just don't remember. This is one that when I did eventually get this again, whether I bought it myself or somebody sent it to me, I can't remember. Um, I just remember seeing this going, wow, I've never seen this, but this is, this is great. I just, I love the cover on it. Um, so yeah, straight up a plus love it. Uh, I'm a huge mark for, uh, for Nick Cardi covers. Um, interior art on this i really like the interior art a lot um this is to me this is you know when i think of when i think back fondly on on kurt swan and the kurt swan that i that i really like this is what i see you know from this era early 70s uh inked by murphy anderson it's just it's great stuff i have very few qualms with it at all uh i'm gonna go a straight up a on the art i really enjoy this superman looks good he's he is the slightly barrel-chested kind of, you know, your dad Superman kind of thing, but he's not a fat ass either, and that's that's what bugged me later on. I I, th- I felt like Swan's Superman got a little chunky and a lot more dad-like. He he looked, he always looked later to me, just like he was just too old. You know what I mean? And and here he doesn't. He he looks a little older, but he doesn't look, you know. I don't know. It's hard to explain, but he, he later on, he just seemed to become more like, like super dad, you know, like he was, you know, like he was moving into middle age kind of thing. And here he looks, he looks like he's probably, you know, late thirties, maybe moving into his four. He still looks a little bit older, but I'm, I'm good with that. I, I, you know, the whole eternally 29 thing never really worked for me either. And he definitely does not look 29 here. He looks like a Superman that's, that's been around doing his thing for a few years. So, and uh, story, story is the, the one where it's really hard because you kind of have to grade it on a curve of, you know, what it is, what, you know, who it was written for, the era, that sort of thing. But even with that, um, wow, it's still, it's, it's pretty dopey. And I'd be a little more forgiving of it if it explained some things like, you know, again, I, the question I really want answered with this book more than anything is, was this just a coincidence that they ran into Superman and he happens to have a connection, a direct connection to these aliens with the whole Krypton thing? Or was it just dumb luck? Because if it's the dumb luck thing, then it goes back to one of the Silver Age tropes with Superman that, that over time has really come to drive me nuts, which is everything from Krypton wound up 
affecting Superman's life later on, whether it fell out of the sky on Earth or he encountered it in space himself or whatever. It's like everything from Krypton, you know, in, in some weird way survived and impacted him later. And it just becomes, you know, this overwhelming, you know, there, there's too much coincidence, you know, from, you know, there's, there's a Superboy story where a box falls out of the sky and it just happens to be full of stuff from Jor-El. And it's like, come on, you know, this couldn't happen. This couldn't land in Gotham City and Batman finds it. It has to land at Superboy's feet, really? So it's, it's not expressed. <laughs> the hell is your so, stuff doing dropping on my plant on my town right. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go so story wise i'm gonna go i'll say a c plus it's a little bit better than the average superman story from this time but it's for the most part it's an average dopey superman story from the 70s so there you go uh oh, oh i'm sorry overall grade i will say overall grade of uh i'll say a b plus I, I i dig it though it is fun it's a good issue but that's that's more for the art than anything else you want to go bill no go ahead i got a bunch of chatty kathy's again in here okay uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah i really like the cover uh i'm gonna say just full shy of being iconic uh, I'm going to give it a B plus. I think it's very solid. The interior art, yeah, I, I kind of agree with you. This is this is, you know, my Silver Age Kurt Swan art. Um, I'm going to say a B plus on that as well. And the story is just flat out weird. Um, <laughs> it is definitely read it, read it, put it away, and forget about it kind of story. It's it just, <laughs> just doesn't really have any anything to make me want to go any further with it uh i'm gonna say i'm 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 gonna be a little more critical than i want to be and i'm gonna say a b minus on the story just because it's just so weird i can't you know it's fine it's silver age but it's just so freaking weird so overall i'll give the book a just a a straight up b fair enough yeah i like this cover (laughs) this is pretty cool and of course you were the first thing like i said earlier that I thought of, I was like, "Oh yeah, Scott got his wish. Everything got sucked into the sun, thrown <laughs> into the sun." Um, so See, I'm I, give I thought just the opposite. I thought instead of Superman throwing something into the sun, the sun was being thrown at Superman. The sun's gonna kick his ass. <laughs> I am tired of you throwing things into me, son of a son of a son, son of a Superman. So I'm gonna give the cover an A. The interior art, I really like the the cardiac. Uh, Superman actually calls it a cardiac creature at one point, right? Which was weird. So, um, and I, I think it looks like future uh, future Brainiac. Who knows if that's where the idea came from? You never know. Um, so the art, uh, I'm going to give the interior art a uh, a B plus. The story, uh, I mean, it did make me. I mean, I kind of went down the mental hole of like, oh, yeah, maybe this is, oh, no, it could be this. Oh, uh, just let it go. So, just just enjoy the story for what it is. And, and now the cat has just boss hogged his way into the garage. So, um, Alan, <laughs> what do you think? That riveting. Okay. So, uh, the story, I'm going to give it a, uh, I'm going to give it a C for the cat. Um, <laughs> so, that comes out to about a B overall for me. Cool. All right, so now it's time for our weirdest book of the night. <laughs> what do you mean? That's something. 
It's not weird. It's a little thing I picked up. We're not even going to do the whole book. We're only doing the first story. And this comes from Lightning. This is a Lightning comic, which I guess was... I did a little bit of research. I guess it was I maybe the precursor to uh, Fawcett Comics. You guys know anything about Lightning Comics? I don't. It can't be a precursor to Fawcett. Fawcett, Fawcett yeah. came around... And yeah, Fawcett's... Oh, well, wait. Well, yeah, Fawcett okay. came around in the 1940s. Yeah. Because basically, the book I have is Fat Man, the Human Flying Saucer. <laughs> That's just wrong on so many levels. And it was created by uh, artist C.C. Beck and writer Otto Bender in the 1960s. And it says, uh, Beck and Bender created Fat Man long after Beck's popular creation, Captain Marvel, was canceled, partly due to a copyright infringement suit with DC Comics. That's why I was thinking maybe it was involved with Fawcett, but yeah, but this was I guess another, probably a short-lived company. I didn't go into the history of Lightning Comics, but uh, our cover, it, there's actually a, a few stories in, in the book, but we're only co covering the first. We have um, <laughs> Fat Man, the Human Flying Saucer, and we have a picture of a rather portly fellow opening his shirt. And inside he has a, underneath he has a costume, it's like a greenish costume with a yellow band around the center and, and a pretty much like a Captain Marvel style cloak, a white with like a yellow trim. And it's, and it says, the, the, the next little bubble says, Fat Man, the human. And then the last one, he's, he's morphing into a flying saucer. Featuring, and, and he's actually, as the flying saucer, he is fighting a purple uh, creature from the Black Lagoon, who is actually called Anti-Man, the monstrous sea horror, but maybe we'll cover that story in in another night. And also, there's introducing Tin Man, teenage hero, who, he is skinny as a rail, but again, that's another story for another night. So, the question now is, do I do the pre-can synopsis or just go through the book? I guess I'll do the pre-can synopsis. Give us more time to chew to chew the fat, so to speak. So, Van Crawford became Fat Man after coming to the aid of an alien flying saucer. The saucer itself turned out to be a shape-shifting... As I said to Scott earlier, you weren't here for that, Paul. He doesn't. He's not cross-eyed, but he's got like Marty Feldman eyes because they're going in two different directions. And then Scott had a lovely song... Uh, uh, set to the tune of uh, Betty Davis eyes, Marty Feldman eyes. <laughs> so if anybody wants to do that, go right ahead. Uh, the saucer turned out to be a shape-shifting alien, which rewarded Crawford, Crawford by giving him a chocolate drink with the ability to transform him into a human flying saucer. Being a wealthy man, like many superheroes of the era, a.k.a. Batman, <laughs> Crawford decides to use this newfound power to become... A superhero. Now, did you guys get a chance to read this? Uh, yeah, well, I, did not. I, I would say skimmed. Skimmed? Oh, is that a fat joke? <laughs> <laughs> I wish it had been, now that you said that. Uh, this oh. is just so just strange. I don't know. I don't know who this is meant to appeal to. <laughs> hey, I'm right here. Wait, did, you, did you write it? <laughs> a sensational new fighting hero of pachyderm proportions whose adventures are overweighted with thrills as he strikes like a ton of bricks. 
crooks have slim chances as he tips the scales against crime at every turn. But that's not all. Fat Man's exploits reaching soaring heights in high-speed action full of horsepower punch with the sky the limit. So basically, he's a rather portly fellow who lives with his rich parents, and his dad basically is like, man, you're just a waste. And his dad is pretty much insults him constantly. You know, like, do something. Eat a carrot, you fat bastard. Something. <laughs> but he likes to uh, he likes to collect stamps and puppets. Uh-oh. <laughs> Boy, that kind of hits home. Comics and action figures. Oh, my God. <laughs> you did, he, he's collected every kind in the world already, though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but he also grows exotic tropical plants. He's like, what else is there in life? And his, and his dad, who looks like... His dad looks like uh, hmm, General Ross, doesn't he? A little bit, yeah. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, he could be, uh, uh, what's your name? Hey, you milksop. He could be Ver- Veronica Lodge's father from the Archie Oh, comics. yeah, yeah. You could be an explorer or join the Peace Corps or be an astronaut. I'm like, really, an astronaut? Come on, dude. <laughs> Have you seen him? <laughs> And he's like, astronaut, that's for the birds, which reminds me, time to go out bird watching. Who knows, I might spot a black-throated, green-breasted, black, I might spot a black-throated, green-backed, pink-breasted lark. And uh, Our son will never amount to a thing. He's a big, fat bird brain. (laughs) (laughs) That's the mother and the father way. And the mother's like breaking down. (laughs) Oh, God, what have we done? Oh. And then when his parents are safely out of sight, young Van Crawford suddenly acts with a with a purpose. Time to change. Time to change. Well, wait. Do well, we need to do Louis Anderson? Time yeah. to change the fat man. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is made to appeal to the people who like the you know like Harvey comics, you know, like Richie Rich, and and stuff of the, at that level. I, yeah, yeah. Because basically, he <laughs> runs and jumps, and he he morphs into. A flying saucer with two eyeballs that zips around, and then we get a recap of his origin. And he was oddly enough bird watching when he spotted a flying saucer out of control. Which, for some reason, when he's looking through the binoculars, okay, they show him looking with the binoculars up to his eyes. The next panel, they have his word captured: "Flying saucer, it's out of control and coming down right near here." Do they really need to... And in the panel, it's got the little two circles tied together for binoculars. And then they have to point an arrow that says, What Van Sees. Um, and I, you know what? I guess if little kids are reading this, they may not get that. All right. I'll let that go. But uh, so as he's running, he's going. he decides he's going to save the flying saucer by knocking down a tree. So, I mean, does he already have super strength? Or, I mean, hey, I'm pretty fat, but I can't knock over an effing tree. Just by running into it. Have you tried? Well, I mean, I have slid down a uh, inclined slope at a Seven Eleven and almost took out Scott's kids, but that's besides the point. <laughs> <laughs> it was a slippery slope. I'm just saying. Speaking so, of slippery slopes, I, I just went down a rabbit hole here. <laughs> so this oh, no. character was reminding me a lot, uh, and I was trying to, I was trying to think of who oh, it was. Yeah, it, it was reminding me of Uncle Marvel, but I, I kept thinking that I had seen a character in a fat... Bouncing uh, boy? Was it, was it Herbie? 
Well, um, no, I was thinking of that too, but I was thinking specifically because this character, I mean, you can tell it was created by C.C. Beck because his costume is very Captain Marvel-like and Captain Beck created uh, Captain Marvel. So I kept thinking that I had seen a, a fat character in a Captain Marvel outfit besides Uncle Dudley. So I, I got to thinking about Wait a minute, there were some characters called the Lieutenant Marvels, which I gotta be honest, I don't know a hell of a lot about. So I looked them up, and sure enough, there was one Marvel, it was Fat Marvel was his name, his superhero name. He was one of the Lieutenant Marvels. So I was looking over his entry here on whatever this is, Wikipedia, I guess, and it gave his first appearance as Wiz Comics 21. So I hunted... <laughs> and I'm looking here, and there's a sequence where Billy Batson is tied up and he's gagged and he and three other people are on this they're strapped to this log that's being sent to the saw you know like the old cartoon gag right so they're headed towards this saw now billy's got a gag on his mouth and as he's approaching the saw he says there's still one thing i can try if i don't get my head cut off doing it and there is a horrific panel of him leaning into the saw blade, and it looks for all the world like his face just got cut off. But then the next one, he's perfectly fine, and he shouts Shazam, and he turns himself and these three people sitting behind him into Captain Marvel. So he becomes Captain Marvel, and the three people behind him become... The the last guy in the line says, I guess we're kind of second Lieutenant Marvel, and that's where the name Lieutenant Marvels came from. So each turned into a different one, and one of them was a hillbilly, so he became hillbilly Marvel, and one of them was fat, so he became fat Marvel. <laughs> and then I forget who the third guy was. There was another one, too. I, Tall Marvel, I think, was his name, something like that. And that's where these guys came from. But I'm, I'm telling you, i got to send you this picture of, of Billy, because it really looks like his face just got sawed off. It's t- it's really deeply disturbing. And the guy behind him is looking mortified. Like, Holy shit! <laughs> so, like, if we, were, if we were involved in that, I'd be producer Marvel, Bill would be Dr. Marvel, and you'd be Scott H. Marvel. H. Marvel. Just H. Marvel, because nobody, he's so mysterious, nobody knows what the H stands for. Hercules. Hercules Marvel. That's what the H stands for in uh, in Shazam, right? Isn't it Hercules? Yes. Well, yes. Hercules, Hercules. Atlas, but, if yeah. but if your it's middle Hercules. name was Hercules, you would you would be embracing that. You wouldn't. <laughs> you wouldn't yeah, have the yeah. issue with it that you have. No, you wouldn't, because we'd all be going Hercules, Hercules, Hercules. Yeah, I, I still think it's. Yeah, Herma- that's... I think it's Hermaphrodite, but that's just. <laughs> it's holy, Scott Holy Gardner. That's the other thing with this. Did you notice every holy that he says is a food yeah. item? Yeah, I know. Yeah, he's... Uh, holy bacon, holy... Holy bacon. Holy, <laughs> holy bacon. The saucer's <laughs> shrinking. It must be those hundred oysters I had for breakfast. Hundred oysters? Holy six-course dinners. <laughs> what does he say that later to? Oh... When holy he tur- apple pie, yeah. When he turns into the sp- flying... Now, here's the thing with this. This is already bizarre enough. Why the hell does he turn into a flying saucer? Why can't he just be a super powerful fat guy? Because he looks kind of cool in that... Co- I think the costume's kind of cool. Do Even you really? A big tubby bastard is still kind of cool, but then he turns into an actual shiny spaceship. Why? Yeah, but he gets... 
okay, so he's talking to the alien who is really looks like looks like the dad to maybe the aliens from um, Toy Story minus one <laughs> eye. Wow, <laughs> because I mean he's. He's, his eyes aren't cross-eyed. They're the anti-cross-eyed. He's got, like, two lazy eyes looking around. Can't sneak up on this guy. You know. I apologize to anyone out there who has a lazy eye. I'm an a-hole. Whenever I hear that, I always... Did you ever, did you ever see Fiebel Goes West? Oh, no. it's been a long time. He goes... <laughs> Jimmy Stewart was the voice of, uh, I don't know, he's a cat oh, the dog. or something. He was the sheriff, just, right? Yeah, that's right. He goes, the lazy eye. <laughs> that's what I always think of. So the alien basically says, uh, oh, because of your kindness, because you have empathy and you pushed a tree over to save me, I'm going to reward you <laughs> with this formula that can that allows you to change into a flying saucer, just like me. And he makes it taste like chocolate. And, of course, the guy eats it. No, was this a fat joke? Yeah. So, uh, and then the, the guy just zips off and says, you know, hey, now you will have power, speed, fighting abilities beyond those of any other human. You can help in the constant battle between good and evil. Farewell, Earthling. And he's like, what? And he walks away and uh, suddenly he thinks birds, poof. And he turns into a flying saucer. And then he's flying around in the air. He's Diving through water, he can go around the world in 80 minutes. Uh, he's running rings around a plane, freaking out the pilots, no doubt. You know, these poor guys are going to have to retire now because everybody thinks they're crazy. Um, goes into orbit and he freaks out some astronauts in a capsule because you just see a question mark coming out of this capsule, like, "What the? F Was that a fat guy or a flying saucer? I don't know." <laughs> but hey, he's hungry, so he goes to land. He hides in a. Uh, in a hangar and some crooks are coming in to steal an experimental plane and he turns back into well he he, he can't remember how to he doesn't know how to change back so he thinks of his name plop nice nice sound effect effect for when he changes and fights these guys and really this is where i was like really <laughs> i don't have these fighting abilities <laughs> so this one guy tries to pick him up he's like oh i can't budge him this way comes in handy at times, my thieving friends. And he basically belly bumps him, especially when I start throwing it around. Oof. And then he just swings. He jumps up and swings and just lands on a couple guys, probably killing them. And then he uh, does a teeter-totter trick and probably plows another guy into this overhead ceiling and kills him. And then uh, he goes for a meal while, uh, you know, once everything's wrapped up and goes home and creates a costume out of a bunch of masquerade outfits. And then uh, continues to raid the refrigerator, and it says, "Now that you, now that you know how it all started, read on for further adventures of the ponderous pachyderm, Fat Man." And we're followed up by a Polaris nuclear sub ad. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and to get a to get a life size pinup of David McCallum. David McCallum. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Ilya Koryakin. <laughs> No, I want the Polaris nuke sub that's big enough for two kids. Fires rockets and torpedoes. Only six dollars and ninety-eight cents. My God, I mean, we could, we could, you know, we could have taken no over the we world. <laughs> we no wonder we bankrupted the Soviets. I guess you know we had all these kids out there and these subs. They couldn't compete. 
Uh, I got some chuckles out of this, and I don't know if I should feel offended or not. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, you know, I guess he's not a politically correct hero, but, uh, you know. Well, I guess a, his it, arch it was in a time where there was no political correctness. I guess his arch ne- his uh, arch villain would be Doctor Diabetes. <laughs> <laughs> How long did this character stick around for? Uh, at least an issue. No, I think there was. Uh, I think there was at least three. Wow! <laughs> oh my god! I just looked at the picture. <laughs> I know, doesn't it? Am I? Was I lying? <laughs> no, you were on the money. And look at his face right off. Jing. How did he get that? But look at the teeth on that blade. How oh did God. that not, at the very least, cut his nose off? But yeah, that is disturbing. I am gonna. I am going to edit this he, picture. You know, just just down to the t- the first three panels and post it in our Facebook group and and see. He what did it from the side of his cheek. Yeah, right. Like lean in, zing. You want to try and post it like right around the time when this edit when this episode goes up, though. This way, people will actually see it and yeah, understand we'll what of, it is you're doing. We'll have plenty of Fat Man pictures in there, too. Uh, I think this one at least... Uh, I think I s- saw at least three issues. Hard to believe. Uh, and and I have, this is actually uh, 68 pages, so I guess we could say it's supersized. <laughs> what? <laughs> Yeah, sometimes uh, sometimes with books of this nature, I just get a kick out of the campiness of it, and I gotta say, this one really didn't do it for me. I, I, just, <laughs> I, I just, you know, I didn't find it amusing. I, you know, I, I the, Her, Herbie the Fat Fury, I'm all over that, but you know, this just didn't do it. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, with that, with those fine words, I guess I'll put a rating on this. Uh the cover. Uh, cover's got oh, a lot of... Fat Man is on Mike's Amazing World. Uh. <laughs> oh, yes. I guess I should say this is from April of 1967. So, And this was approved by the Comics Code Authority, too. What the hell were they thinking? <laughs> well, you know, we didn't have zombies or ghouls or dead people. Just, you know, pushed bad eating habits. Because for breakfast, the guy said... Uh, he broke his diet because his mother says, Junior, you're allowed only six eggs, five chops, and four squabs. You ate three times that much. Ah, but mother, I'm cutting down, see? Only two layer cakes and a gallon of ice cream. Jesus Christ. This guy's not going to have any toes by the end of the issue. Ah, so, the cover. Um, you know, I, mean, I, mm, I don't know if I'd pick it up off the newsstand. But maybe if I was a little well, kid and wanted to read Adventures of Fat Man. If I was a fat little kid, I'd probably buy this. Yeah, I, I think you got to rate this one from the perspective of if you were like eight and you were in the newsstand, you know, looking for a comic. I, it would probably get my attention. I think I, I, if I was an eight-year-old, I would give this a B-plus for a cover. And the art, I like the, I mean, the art's kind of fun. It's got that, um, you know, that Archie-ish or, you know, the Harvey Comics feel to it um not quite as good as that honeymooners one that we have no, i don't think it's even close to the honeymooners one so i mean i think i'm gonna give the art on this like a 
like a C plus. Uh, the story, I mean, man, there's a lot of fat jokes in here. I got to say the humor did make me chuckle a lot. Um, <laughs> so I think I'm actually going to give the story. Oh, mm. I think I'm going to give the story a B. If I was a little kid, I would get a, I mean, I, as an adult, I got some laughs out of this. So uh, that makes it a B minus book for me. Let's say one of you guys. You and me, Scott. Remember your eight year old. I was looking and in the same year, Otto Binder I knew I recognized that name. I was looking up to see what else he'd worked on. He was very prolific in comics and uh, did a lot of stuff for DC with Superman titles and all. He was he wrote a lot of uh, Captain Marvel's adventures. Uh, you know, the the original Captain Marvel. But he uh, he was also a novelist. In the same year that this came out, he wrote, or, or at least it was published. Um, do you remember the Avengers um, prose novel where the Avengers battled the Earthwrecker? It had a painted cover by I think by one of the Buscemas. I know of it. I've never read it. And then there was a book uh, published by him, same, both in the same year, the Avengers one in 67. And then this other one in 67, what we really know about flying saucers. So I'm wondering if he was a, a UFO enthusiast and was just cashing in on the whole UFO craze that was going on about this time. And that's why this fat man <laughs> turned into a flying saucer. I don't know. It's, it's no weirder than the than Bigfoot being on the $6 million man, I guess. So, I don't know. It's of, a new, of a new star coming into our solar system. <laughs> 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 yeah, there you go. Um, I, you know, I can't honestly give much of a grade to this. I didn't read it, um, you know, just for time constraints and everything. But, uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting... But, that's, I mean, that's about the kindest thing I can really say about it. Um, let's see here. Cover. See, I don't... I'm not crazy about the cover. I don't know that this would... I don't... I, I this you would pretend you're eight. What's that? You gotta pretend you're eight years old. Yeah, but, I mean, even at eight years old, I, I really... Oh, you were very sophisticated. Oh, oh. Yeah, I'm just saying, I, you, know, at, at, you know, at eight years old, I don't think this is something that would grab me. Because... You know, it's not part of the the DC or Marvel universe. You know, I, I was, you know, it, it just, yeah. And that kind of cartoony, Richie Rich style didn't really appeal to me all that much. I, I don't know. I, I could be wrong, but I just don't think this would be anything that grabbed me. Uh, well, I uh, love reading those as a kid, so. And then, you know, I do kind of like the interior art just because it is, you know, it's classic Beck. And I did, I was a big fan uh, when I was a little kid of, uh, of Beck's, you know, classic Captain Marvel stuff. I don't really, it doesn't really appeal to me now, but I liked that stuff when I was a kid. But I probably liked it because I liked Captain Marvel. When I was a kid, you know, Shazam was on TV, you know, and, and I was a big fan of that show. So whether this would appeal for the same reason, I, I don't know. I, I I have a feeling that this would have put me off, though, just by the whole thing of him turning into a flying saucer. That's the part of this I just can't get my mind past, like, it's like pick one or the other, but doing both, having him be both a cool looking superhero and, you know, who just happens to be a tubby dude, but then turning into an actual living flying. It's just so it's just too damn weird. It's, it's really bizarre. So, yeah, I 
<laughs> you could put that I, I don't feel I don't justify the weird for Scott Gardner. Yeah, just yeah, it is. It's, I mean, yeah, I, I I've read some weird ass shit, and I like some weird ass shit, but this is this is just too far for me. So yeah, <laughs> that's the only grade I can give it. Too weird for me. All right. Well, see, as as an eight year old, I didn't dislike the sad sack, Richie Rich, silly, you know, stupid comics. But I, I, I don't know if I'm overrating my eight-year-old self, but I think this one still would not – I think this would still be below me, I'm sorry to say. Uh, I think the cover is, is just so disjointed, it doesn't really – it wouldn't grab me at all. It's like they, they couldn't even have the uh, the title of the book centered on the front page. It's going to be off to the side. I, I don't know. I don't. I really don't like the cover. I'd give it a – well, that's because he's so fat, he has to take up the rest of the cover. Oh. I'd give it a D. Oh, guys are killing me. The story is is so stupid. Uh, <laughs> but but I could see myself in a situation where, like, I had to sit somewhere and had nothing to do at eight years old, and I'd pick up this comic and start reading it and be fine reading it. So I'm I'll gonna... remind you that even at eight years old, you had a penis, sir. <laughs> Uh, but I'm gonna I'm gonna give it I'm gonna give it a C on the story just because it's stupid silly maybe and my ear old self would find it amusing, and the interior artwork is I think typical of that type of story Richie Rich, uh, Sad Sack and all of those and I never had any problem with those so I'm gonna give it a C plus on on the interior artwork for for what it is and overall I'll give the book a C I'm being generous we get a we get a like a a B, a C, and a too weird for Scott. <laughs> and and I'm telling you, Scott digs some really weird shit. So this too weird for him. <laughs> Bring back F Troop, please, please no, <laughs> don't do it. That's it, the F Troop retrospective. There are at least three issues from what I'm seeing here, but I, I can't seem to find anything beyond three issues so i don't know but i can't i can't seem to find any sort of database for this either so i don't i have no idea the wikipedia article on him basically said this character existed and that's about it that's about all they they have on it strange you think think there'd be multiple pages on this one there is a fred hembeck rendition though so there you go he's he's hit the big time right there Anybody, anybody illustrated by Fred Hembeck is somebody. Right. So there you go. All right, fat so. man. Ta, 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 <laughs> we never went there. We never did a fat man joke. A Batman, fat man joke. Batman on Batman. Oh, that would be. Uh, well, he's not a fat man anymore, so. Yeah, you should have had like a sidekick named like Boppin, so it could be Fat Man and Boppin. <laughs> Whatever. Fat man in side order. <laughs> I like that. I guess that's it for this week's show. (laughs) If you're you're still with us, thank you for staying staying around this long. Somewhere somebody's going, I stayed for Fat Man, the human flying saucer? What the? I want my money back. Yeah, well, you're welcome to it. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Remember we were talking about cosplay there a while back, Bill? There you go, buddy. Oh, are you going to make me a flying saucer outfit? (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. 
You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Each and every month, the Two True Freaks Network produces dozens of new and exciting episodes which regularly reach tens of thousands of loyal listeners worldwide. Sponsorship and or advertising opportunities are available. Inquiries may be made via email to twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. So I was just like, ah, I just been and just didn't just rebooted it and took a dump. Because <laughs> I was so pensive and tied up at that point. I was just like, I got to go to the bathroom now. Are you, uh, are you at all familiar with the concept of too much information? <laughs> no. Why do you ask? No reason. <laughs>